The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as usual. And then we're joined by former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who will talk about her time in the Clinton and Obama administrations, and importantly, her new book, Tough Love. And the word for this week, you know, as organizers, we often think about the problems that we face as present but not permanent. Hunger is present, not permanent. Poverty is present, not permanent. Police violence is present, not permanent. So part of our work is to acknowledge that things exist the way they do, but also remember that they don't have to be this way. And there's a great phrase that organizers say all the time, and it is, don't watch the polls, shape them. That instead of sitting back and saying, oh, this is happening, this is how people feel, this is the way public sentiment is going, you actually have the power to shape public sentiment. You have the power to shape the way people think about the world, the way that people think about what is possible. And part of our work has to be to exercise that at every step that we give. That it's our job to help people think about what they are worth, think about the world that we all deserve, and to fight like that at every step of the way. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So I'm here to talk to you today about a law that you may or may not be familiar with. It's called the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA for short. The law has been in play for about 40 years, and all throughout that 40-year history, this law has seen court challenge after court challenge. Here's why. Because the law essentially gives priority to indigenous people in the adoption of an indigenous child. The law goes on to mandate that the ranking order be like this, that first preference be given to relatives of the indigenous child, second preference be given to the tribe with whom the child is registered, and third be given to non-relative Native families before the child is then opened up to be adopted by a non-Native family. As you've heard us talk about on this podcast many times before, there is a distinct history in the colonization of this country and others where indigenous people, indigenous children, have been stolen in the middle of the night, shipped off to camps and boarding schools and other places to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. Of course, oppression always depends on the assimilation of the marginalized. And that is why those kind of horrific tactics were used over and over and over again. And the Indian Child Welfare Act was created in 1978 to try to counteract that, to try to ensure that we would never again enter a time where indigenous children would be taken against their wills, separated from their communities, thus doing harm to the child and their communities. But as you can imagine, this gets complicated when you are talking about individual circumstances. There is a Texas couple, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen, who fostered an indigenous child, we'll call him ALM for his own protection, for over a year, and when they went to go and adopt the toddler, they were challenged by the ICWA. What's interesting here is that the adoption of the child by a non-Native family is both supported by the child's birth parents, who are members of the Navajo Nation and the Cherokee Nation, respectively, and the child's paternal grandparents. 
They've also seen support from the state's attorneys in Texas, Louisiana, and Indiana. Again, this is a long battle where people have been trying to challenge the constitutionality of this law. But we can't forget exactly why this law was created in the first place. And several tribal leaders have come out in support of the ICWA, including several who signed on to a letter that said the following. We never want to go back to the days when Indian children were ripped away from their families and stripped of their heritage. We continue to believe that the Fifth Circuit decision affirming the constitutionality of ICWA was the right decision. While it's unfortunate that the attacks on this critical law continue, we are confident that the court will once again uphold the constitutionality of ICWA as courts have repeatedly done over the last 40 years. This one doesn't have a super clear ending for a lot of people, but what I do know is that I trust indigenous people, I trust marginalized people, and there is a clear question here about how we ensure that culturally responsive and culturally relevant choices are made, especially when a child's well-being is in question. So certainly a difficult topic, but one that I wanted to bring up because in so many ways we overlook the voices of marginalized people when making decisions like this. And I'm glad to see that for over 40 years, the conversation has continued to include Indigenous people in the future of their own communities. You know, Brittany, this is something that I didn't know a whole lot about. And, you know, I'm just learning about now. You know, I wasn't aware of the provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed in 1978, to respond to a family separation crisis for Native American communities. 25 to 35% of all Native American children, according to the National Indian Child Welfare Association, were being removed from and separated from their families. And 85% of those children were being placed in homes outside of their families or tribes. Uh, so the law was enacted in direct response to this, and now it's being challenged in the courts. And I'm just struck by the parallels of what this law was created to address and what's still going on in America today, particularly the parallels between immigration and the immigration policy under the current administration and many of these issues that gave rise to the law. So we're seeing right now how families are being separated from their children at the border. And many of those children now we're finding out are being adopted in many cases by white families. This is still going on, right? And many of those children are indigenous children, children from Central America, South America, um, who are being separated from their families and given to white families to raise against the will of their parents. So this is something that we need more legislation, stronger legislation to address across the board, not repealing and dismantling the legislation that was already enacted to protect indigenous communities within the United States. And really what we need to do is be protecting indigenous communities all across the world and including immigrant communities, because this is an issue that crosses borders and an issue that continues to happen today. Today, my news is about the decision made by Twitter to ban all issue-based and political advertising on their platform. In explaining the rationale behind the decision, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said, Paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. It's worth stepping back in order to address it. So this decision comes at a time when we're seeing huge amounts of money being spent on political campaigns, political advertising on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Now, the decision to ban these ads on Twitter in particular may not have the biggest impact on this issue, in part because most campaigns are spending their money on Facebook and Google, and less so on Twitter to advertise to potential voters. 
So for example, since May of 2018, the Trump campaign has only spent about $6,000 on Twitter advertising, but has spent $21 million on advertising on Facebook. The next highest spender is Tom Steyer, another super wealthy individual and campaign that has spent $12 million on advertising on Facebook. Meanwhile, the other Democratic candidates, none of them have actually spent more than $5 million advertising on Facebook, and none of them have spent more than $1.2 million advertising on Twitter. So the biggest impact potentially from this decision by Twitter could be in putting pressure on the rest of the ecosystem, in particular Facebook and Google, to take action in similar ways to curtail the influence of people with a lot of money using it to expand their reach using these platforms through digital advertising. But it's also created some controversy around the implementation of these new rules. So while the rules are still being finalized and the policy should be officially released on the 15th of November, we've seen folks from organizing communities call out potential inconsistencies in how a ban on issue-based and political advertising on Twitter could impact their work. So for example, folks who are engaged in climate change activism may see their ability to advertise on Twitter curtailed because that's considered an issue-based ad. However, if you are a fossil fuel corporation and you want to advertise a new product, which of course is going to impact the climate, you may not be banned. So that could create an inconsistency in the application of the rule. Similarly, we've seen groups ourselves included that have used social media platforms and digital advertising to effectively reach people and impact them in a positive way. So for example, getting folks registered to vote who have passed convictions in states like Florida, digital advertising has been an incredible strategy of being able to reach people in a hyper-targeted way and inform them that they can now register to vote. Similarly, campaigns that are local in nature that are about things that may not be in the national news, for example, about a police union contract or a opportunity to engage in local activism to address issues of criminal justice reform and police reform. Those issues could also be benefited by digital ad campaigns, and we've seen groups effectively utilize that strategy as a force multiplier to support local organizing campaigns. All of that could be curtailed by these new rules. So again, this is rapidly unfolding. We're still waiting to see exactly how these new rules are going to be applied on Twitter and the effect that they'll have on the broader ecosystem. But it's a sign that these platforms are starting to take notice, at least on Twitter, that something is going on with regard to the ability of millionaires and billionaires and well-funded political campaigns to use their money towards nefarious ends and that that has to stop. The exact way in which that stops, I think, is very much in flux, and we'll see how this develops over time. So the decision of Twitter to get rid of political ads is an interesting one, and one that will certainly, I imagine, have reverberations throughout the tech community, and in many ways it already has. And so it, you know, what it's led to is a lot of people saying, oh, Facebook should do the same thing. Facebook should get rid of these political ads because, as we've seen over the past several weeks, you have folks like Donald Trump and his campaign who are going to use the fact that Facebook does not police or fact check their political ads as a way to lie very explicitly lie and mislead the public and those who are they are targeting with the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that they are going to spend undoubtedly over the course of the next year moving into the 2020 election. And it's been interesting because there's a sort of divide of progressive folks with regard to thinking about what the impact of banning Facebook political ads would do to the left. So campaigns spend a lot of money on Facebook to build out the email list that they rely heavily on for fundraising. And so cutting that off, many people say, would be a big deal, especially for newer and smaller campaigns that don't already have these big lists to work with. 
there's a lot to be said about how the banning of Facebook ads would look on a national scale, like a huge, you know, presidential election. There's also plenty of smaller examples, candidates who are running for local races across the country where just a couple thousand dollars on Facebook ads can make a huge difference or for progressive primary challengers to incumbent members of Congress who just need to get their names out there and find voters, especially in these local elections where name recognition is so much of the game, like that is the name of the game. Um, I'm by no means an expert on tech and ethics. Obviously, what's happening with Facebook has to change. And obviously, I think they are operating at least in what they're telling us, in a lot of bad faith. So at the very least, for example, you know, I think about how in the U.S. we have the Federal Communications Commission, which has extensive guidelines for television and radio broadcasters around political advertising, including how they disclose who's behind ads, uh, the amount of access they give to candidates, and how much they charge. Uh, The FCC has extensive rules, and the problem is that, that those rules don't apply to online platforms. The larger problem is that Facebook and all of these online platforms are not regulated to nearly the same extent that these radio and television broadcasters and networks are. And so I think it has to begin there, but you know, the average age of our senators now is 62 years old. And so these are people who are not necessarily tech-savvy, and I think that that has been revealed in a myriad of the hearings that have been had on this issue um, over the course of the past several months and years. And so I don't know the answer. I know that there are a lot of folks who I trust and believe who say that banning Facebook political ads would be bad for people on the left and small insurgent candidates, so many of whom were the ones who won in 2018. But then what does any of it mean if Facebook is going to allow people to lie? So a lot to be done on this front, um, but an important conversation to have. So for my news, I want to talk about a letter that was recently sent to Harvard by the prime minister of Antigua, a guy named Gaston Brown. And he demanded that the university pay his country reparations for what he calls the gains that Harvard enjoyed at the expense of Antiguan slaves. And so the history of Antigua is deeply entangled in the history of Harvard. And, and he explains kind of how in this letter, and he draws a direct line from Harvard Law School's success today to the oppression of Antiguans enslaved by a Massachusetts-based plantation owner in the colonial era. The plantation owner was a guy named Isaac Royal Jr., the wealthy benefactor of Harvard's very first law professorship back in 1815, whose name is still attached to Harvard's distinguished royal professor of law position today. In the letter, Brown says, we considered Harvard's failure to acknowledge its obligations to Antigua and the stain it bears from benefiting from the blood of our people as shocking, if not immoral. Brown's request for reparations comes as numerous universities across the U.S., including Harvard, have in different ways sought to reckon with their enduring ties to the history of chattel slavery and its impact on the economy, something that we've outlined extensively on the podcast. So, for example, last month, the Princeton Theological Seminary pledged $27 million in reparations in the form of scholarships and other initiatives to help the descendants of enslaved people. In September, the Virginia Theological Seminary created a $1.7 million reparation fund. And so, you know, when we've talked a bit about what Georgetown has done in terms of trying to reckon with its history uh, and the Jesuit priests who enslaved Africans and how they have tried to reckon with that by allowing the descendants of so many of those folks to get an education from Georgetown. But to Brown, in the context of Harvard, the acknowledgement that Harvard has made is not nearly enough. Brown writes that the university has failed to take steps to make more concrete amends to Antigua through reparations. He claimed that the university ignored the Antiguan officials' past requests to begin discussing how reparations could work. Uh, He suggested that in his letter that Harvard could offer, for example, financial assistance to the University of West Indies campus in Antigua. The president of Harvard wrote back Lawrence Bacow. He said, you know, we 
recognize that there is more to be done, and we are committed to taking additional steps to explore the institution's historical relationship with slavery and the challenging moral questions that arise when confronting past injustices and their legacy. But what he did not say in the letter is if he would be willing to meet with the Prime Minister of Antigua to discuss in good faith their options, and nor did he specify which specific more concrete steps would be taken. And so for some context, Antigua recently celebrated only its 38th year of independence from Britain. Um, you know, we could talk a lot about how the remnants of colonialism shape the way our contemporary landscape of global inequality works. And we have talked about the history of imperialism and colonialism a bit. But they have been working with an organization called the Caribbean Reparations Commission for the past several years to make a, quote, moral, ethical, and legal case for the payment of reparations by the governments of all former colonial powers and the relevant institutions of those countries. Historian Caitlin DeAngelis, who was previously Harvard's slavery research associate, uh, said in a Twitter thread that was really interesting that research and plaques and, quote, unquote, reckoning that Harvard is doing is simply not enough unless it manifests itself in the context of material benefits for those who were harmed and the descendants of those who were harmed. She says, quote, research is great, but we know enough to act now. Harvard profited from slavery. Its early endowment was built on slavery-dependent industries like sugar, cotton, and the Caribbean provisioning trade. Major gifts came from sugar planters, slave traders, and cotton manufacturers. She suggests that at bare minimum, Harvard has an obligation to invest its current endowment in restorative and reparative ways. That includes, first and foremost, an explicit apology. It includes divesting from prisons, which carry the legacy of enslavement, collaborate and provide pathways to education for descendants of those whose labor built the schools, like a place like Georgetown has, investing in HBCUs, and investing in education in Antigua, as the prime minister specifically requested. So I bring this up because I think, you know, we are having and continue to have this conversation about reparations. And what's important to remember is that this conversation has global implications, right? Like slavery existed all across the Americas, all across North and South America. And our institutions today, some of our largest, most profitable, most successful, most esteemed institutions exist because of the labor of enslaved people in the U.S. and enslaved people outside of it. And so this conversation about who is owed reparations, I think, is so important and it's also so complex. It is not as simple as some people tend to present it as, but that does not mean that you do not lean into that complexity. That does not mean you wrestle with that complexity. What it means is that you acknowledge it and figure out what is the best way to move forward and, and how can we do that in a good faith way. Uh, so I wanted to bring that up and I hope that my school will do right by those it is harmed. My news is about the creation of the National Vetting Center. This is something that I think has wholly been off the radar at the national level. But the Trump administration in a memo called for the creation of a National Vetting Center. And the National Vetting Center will be the first time that all of the agencies that deal with intelligence, so the CIA, NSA, the Director of National Intelligence, that all the agencies under Homeland Security will come together to vet foreign vacationers seeking travel visas, people looking for permanent residency, and immigrants requesting asylum under Border Patrol. So Customs, CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection, they will oversee the National Vetting Center that will use classified information to decide if people should be granted visas, residency, or asylum. This is troubling for a host of reasons, primarily because it'll be the first time that classified information is actually being used to decide these immigration decisions. It'll be one of the first times where Congress or anybody sort of looking for oversight will really have to fight because 
heretofore, it hasn't been classified information. The CIA and the NSA are spy agencies. They haven't really been involved in immigration directly, like as a part of a program. But this is actually creating a program that's a pipeline to vet people. Now, we know that vetting is code in this administration for denying people access. The National Vetting Center came up, was essentially born out of the same memo that birthed the Muslim ban. So we know the intent, we know the rationale. Now, here's the important thing besides the fact that this is being created. The important thing to remember is that once these apparatus are built, it's really hard to dismantle them. So the reason that we fight on the front end is because we know that once you build a whole new agency, once you reconfigure agencies to work together, once you pump all this money in, hire all these people, redefine working relationships, it's just hard for the government to move back. It's not impossible. They definitely can do it. It just is rarely seen. It's the same reason why people double down on ICE. You know, I think that a lot of people on, on the left who don't believe that ICE is good, they also don't even have a framework for thinking about the end of an agency. Like, that's just not what we we normally see the creation of things. It's also interesting because the right is often talking about small government, uh, but they are actually expanding the reach of government in ways that are only detrimental to civil liberties, to public safety. And again, Border Patrol and ICE have never proven that they are stopping terrorism. They've never proven that they're stopping crime in the country. It really is about keeping immigrants from some countries out of this country. The other thing is I remember with most of the things Trump is doing, there's always money. There was a contract awarded to General Dynamics at about $113 million to carry out what's called the Visa Lifecycle Vetting Initiative, which was formerly known as the Extreme Vetting Initiative. But this is actually the beginning of what is going to be the National Vetting Center. It is the National Vetting Enterprise. I hope that when the next president comes in and we get Trump out in 2020, that there is somebody in the party keeping a log of all these things that we just need to undo on day one. And it needs to be a deep and radical undoing because things like the National Betting Center have no place in a democracy that is rooted in the idea of justice, even though we don't see the practice of it every day, we still have to fight for it. We don't need a National Betting Center and we certainly don't need this president. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. 
two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now my conversation with former National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, to talk about the administration she worked in and her new book, Tough Love. Ambassador Rice, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's great to be with you, DeRay. This has been a long overdue. I'm excited you're here. You have a book that just came out, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Uh, But before we talk about the book, I have so many other things to talk about that are also talked about in the book, like you mentioned the protests at the end and... So many other things. But how is it now being on the outside of the administration when you were so intimately a part of it for so long? Well, to be outside of this administration feels absolutely normal. I couldn't possibly be inside of it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
And I recognize that we have change of governments. And, you know, I was going to be outside of any administration, even if it were a Democratic administration, because it had been another eight years of service on top of eight prior years of service under President Clinton. So I think there's a season for serving and devoting virtually all your energies to the public good. And then there's times when you got to recover and be there for the people who support you while you serve, your family and your friends and your loved ones. I've always loved the way that you talk about your family. Uh, Can you talk about why you titled the book Tough Love and how your parents influenced the idea of tough love in your life? Well, tough love to me means loving fiercely, but not uncritically. In other words, telling people the honest truth that they need to hear, whether they want to hear it or not, but, you know, from the point of view of somebody who has your best interests at heart. And that's very much how our parents raised me and my brother, Johnny. It's also how I've tried with my husband to raise our kids. And it's also, in many ways, how I led my teams in government and how I've tried to serve our country. None of us are perfect. All of us can do better. All of us have something to learn. And no one better to learn it from than those who love you most and want to see you grow and develop. And that's an important part of who I am. So Tough Love made a lot of sense as the title of my book. One of the parts I love in the book, uh, I love every time you talk about your parents, but uh, that story when uh, you just left for college and your dad pulls out the notes and you're like, can I keep the notes? <laughs> I thought that was so cute. I was like, wow, do you still have those notes? I do. I do. And Whoa. I quoted from him directly. So my dad, DeRay, gave me all kinds of advice from earliest of childhood all the way until he passed at the age of 91 in 2011. But the only time I ever recall him having written notes was when I was heading off to college. And he took me out to dinner at McDonald's, of all places, the night before I was meant to leave. Uh, My mom was taking me across country to go to California to college. And dad was uh, saying goodbye. And this was his way of making sure that I packed along with all my belongings and necessities his wisdom. And so he shared with me some things that he wanted to emphasize that he thought would be helpful, including being careful about putting too much trust in people or or being careful in terms of deciding who you should trust, particularly in relationships, you know, things like taking care of your, your mind and body and recognizing that you only have one of each and that you, you have to take good care of them both. Um, he gave me a whole range of, of important wisdom in that conversation. You still have those notes. That's fun. You know, DeRay, it's interesting. I never kept a journal, but I kept a lot of important pieces of paper. I kept letters. I kept things like these notes. I kept report cards that I thought were of interest. If I went to a play that I loved, I kept the playbill. And so I had this wooden barrel that had a removable top on it. It was, I think, used many years ago to ship wine from Europe. And my dad brought it back when I was very little, and I used it in my bedroom growing up as sort of an end table to, you know, put a lamp on or put a telephone on or whatever. But I could take the top off and chuck all these pieces of paper in it. And I did that over the years. And when I went back to write this book, I still have the the end table full of the papers. It was like an archaeological dig of my life before email. And that's where I found those notes. (laughs) 
you know, it's always great to talk to people who've written books because uh, I can actually, you know, just reference the book. One of the things that I was interested in is that there are a lot of people who I think don't realize that you worked in the Clinton administration as a senior official. A lot of people obviously know you worked in the Obama administration, but one of the things that I was interested in is you talked about that first uh, six-country visit to Africa and how you would never do such a grueling agenda again, even though the trip was really successful. What are some other things that you're like, having sort of done the State Department work the second time around in an even more senior role, what were some things you learned from the Clinton administration to the Obama administration? Well, I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about my time in the Clinton administration and how it was really the most formative period for me in terms of professional development. I started at 28 years old as a junior staffer on the National Security Council. And then I, two years into that, was elevated to run the small Africa office at the National Security Council. And then in President Clinton's second term, I was nominated and confirmed to be the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, which meant now I'm running a bureau with 100 people in Washington, 5,000 people across sub-Saharan Africa, 43 embassies reporting to me, and I'm 32 years old when I start. And as you might imagine, in the rather small-c conservative culture of the State Department, being a young, very young African-American woman, and a breastfeeding mother, by the way, my, I had a three-month-old son when I started at State, was not a typical profile of somebody in that kind of senior position. And so I had a lot of challenges in terms of dealing with, you know, a wide crush of crises and issues ranging from wars breaking out in the Horn of Africa or in the Democratic Republic of Congo sucking in six neighboring states or our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania being uh, bombed by al-Qaeda in 1998. So I had leadership challenges and management challenges and the need to demonstrate to those who reported to me who were mostly white male foreign service officers, 20 to 30 years my senior, that I could lead them effectively. So um, I learned a lot, Ray, about how to involve people more effectively in decision-making, how to be more patient, how to, you know, not just be driving relentlessly in a straight line towards the end zone when a more zigzagged approach might actually be more effective in terms of bringing my colleagues along with me and building buy-in to the decisions that I was uh, leading us towards. So it was a very formative experience. And I learned much more than what you just described, which is don't torture a president of the United States with a six-stop, multi-10-day trip through Africa. That, was just, that, that, by the way, was not my decision, but it ended up uh, being an object lesson for when I did make those decisions for President Obama. Let's back up a little bit. Most of the listeners of the show, like me, know very little about the structure of the apparatus of uh, foreign policy in, in the government and certainly very little about national security outside of what we see on TV. Can you help us situate, like, what is the role of the National Security Advisor? What does that mean in terms of the National Security Council? Just help us map the apparatus so people can actually know and not just pretend that we know. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the key 
players, the key agencies in any normal administration in terms of national security decision making are the State Department, the Defense Department, the intelligence community, including the CIA, the uniform military represented by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and depending on the issue, sometimes the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Treasury Department, the Justice Department, the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. And then at the center of it, of course, is the White House, because at the end of the day, it's the president who has to make the most difficult and important national security decisions. The organization that is in place to assist the president in making those decisions and was created by law in 1947 is the National Security Council. The National Security Council is staffed by mostly career professionals drawn from each of these agencies. These are not, for the most part, political appointees. These are career experts. And that staff is led by the National Security Advisor. The National Security Advisor's job is to advise the president on what decisions he or she should take, but it's also to coordinate among all of these agencies so that the decisions have the full and adequate input of each of the agencies and their different perspectives, and that once a decision has been made and we're about the business of implementing it, that we are coordinated and firing on all cylinders to implement the decision. So when I was beginning my job, my work in government, I was a 28-year-old junior staffer at the National Security Council. I was one of those professionals who worked to support the National Security Advisor as he advised the president and briefed the president on a daily basis. When I, many years later, in my last job in government, was the National Security Advisor for President Obama in his second term, I would chair the cabinet-level meetings of the National Security Council principals. That would be the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, CIA director, director of national intelligence, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, et cetera, et cetera, the leaders of all of these organizations. I would sit at the head of the table, and I'd set the agenda, and my staff would write the decision papers for the meetings, and I would chair those decision meetings and try to bring that team around the table to a unified recommendation to the president on whatever the issue was. If it could have been Syria, it could have been Cuba, it could have been How do we deal with the Ebola epidemic? All of which I write about in Tough Love. And in those cases where they didn't agree or couldn't agree, my job was not to force the agreement, but rather to fully and fairly represent the views of those of the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense or whoever it was that had a differing view to the president in the final decision memo that I would draft. And at the end of that memo, I would put my own recommendation as to what it is the president should decide. So that's the role of the National Security Advisor. Your job is portrayed on TV and film a lot. Like I've seen like three shows where the National Security Advisor like storms in and has all these bodyguards and like is directing these covert operations. And I don't know, how close is that to what you actually did? (laughs) Well, I can't speak for all the shows, so I got to be careful. Um, But... It's a very high-intensity job with a lot of crises and excitement and opportunities. So 
you know, every morning when the president of the United States was in town, when President Obama was in town, I'd be in his office briefing him on the day's events and what he needed to know. Every day? Yes, every day that the president of the United States was in Washington or traveling on the road, my job would be to brief him and make sure that he had the information that he needed to know what was going on in the world, know what was coming down the pike, what decisions he had to make. And every night I would send him a large stack of briefing memos. Uh, Some of them might be preparation for meetings he had coming up or trips he had coming up. More often than not, they were things he had to make decisions on. And so there's an unglamorous side to the job for sure, which is getting up very early to prepare, reading all the intelligence, getting ready to brief the president, chairing these meetings that I described of the National Security Council principals, meeting with foreign visitors and leaders, traveling on occasion with the president as he traveled abroad, but also independently if there were business I needed to take care of that the president wanted me to do with other foreign leaders. Yes, I did have a security detail provided by Secret Service. And yes, there were classified aspects of it and stuff that involved intelligence that I can't talk about. So there were some dramatic aspects to it, but a lot of routine aspects too of just ensuring that the president of the United States had the the information and the paperwork and all that he needed to make responsible decisions. Now, I put all that very deliberately in the past tense, DeRay, because that's how it's supposed to work. That's how it worked under President Obama. That's how it worked under President Clinton. And I believe that's how it worked under previous Republican presidents, including both Bushes going back to, you know, several years. This is a normal process. We don't have a normal process now. The decision-making of the national security principles has broken down. They rarely meet. Uh, They don't provide unified input to the president. And even if they did, this president seems to have no interest in the views and recommendations of his senior team, much less the experts who are there to serve him in the government. That makes a lot of sense. Now when I watch these shows, I'm going to be a little more, I'm going to be like, where is the meeting of the principals? Don't hoodwink me about what the National Security Advisor does. You also write about Syria, and I wanted to ask you about it because Syria has been in the news recently, and I will consider myself one of the people who, like, I read about it, I know there's a conflict, I know that people are fleeing, I know people are being killed, but I will admit that I don't know most of the details, even when I'm trying to follow it, and I know you write about making the decision, the hard decision not to intervene as aggressively as other people wanted the United States to do. How should we think about Syria? And I ask only because what's happening in this 2020 race is that there are a lot of people who don't know what to do with the foreign policy part of it, partly because of Trump, but partly because we actually just don't spend a lot of time talking about foreign policy on the news over here until something really atrocious happens. How do we make sense of it? So the easiest way to think about Syria, in my view, is that there were really three different aspects to the Syria challenge that we had to deal with under President Obama and that arguably we still have to deal with under President Trump. The one that's in the news recently is the easiest one to explain, and that is the fight against ISIS. ISIS, as everybody knows, is a really deadly, dangerous terrorist organization that suddenly in 2014 reconstituted itself out of old remnants of al-Qaeda. somewhat of a simplification here, but I'm just trying to break it down and took over large pieces of territory in both Iraq and Syria. They brought in lots of foreign fighters from elsewhere in the Arab world and from Europe and even from the United States and trained these people in 
the most deadly tactics and tried to set up what they called a caliphate, kind of a radical Muslim kingdom on the territory of Iraq and Syria. And they beheaded journalists and humanitarian workers. Just brutal. Against that backdrop, President Obama decided that just as it was necessary to fight al-Qaeda after 9-11, we had to fight ISIS. Otherwise, it was going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger threat, not only to the countries in the region and to Europe, but directly to the United States, as it was recruiting people on the internet, inspiring terrorist attacks around the world. So President Obama decided we're going to do this differently and smarter than we had to do it in Afghanistan after 9-11 and in Iraq. We're not going to deploy tens of thousands of U.S. ground forces. We're going to build a coalition of over 65 countries, which he did, all of whom contributed in various ways to the effort to squash ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. Instead of, as I said, putting U.S. ground forces in in large numbers, he made the judgment, President Obama, that it would be wiser and more effective and far more economical in terms of lives and cost if the United States partnered with local forces to fight the terrorists on their territory. So in Iraq, we had to build back the Iraqi army to take on ISIS in Iraq. And in Syria, because the government was not a viable partner and was in the business of slaughtering its own people in the midst of a Syrian civil war, we partnered with Arab and Kurdish forces in northern Syria. And they were the ones who did the bulk of the fighting against ISIS in Syria very effectively. Our role was to deploy a small number of U.S. personnel on the ground, never more than 2,000 at its height, to provide training and advice and equipment and assistance and air support and intelligence to the Kurdish and Arab forces who really fought to put ISIS effectively down, if not altogether out. And what President Trump recently decided to do without any warning and against the advice of his advisors was to pull those small number of U.S. forces, at that point only about a 1,000 left, out of northern Syria and abandon the Kurds who had been our critical partners, which has taken a lot of the pressure off of ISIS, even despite the killing of uh, al-Baghdadi. Hundreds of ISIS prisoners have escaped who are terrorists who can go return to the fight. And so this is a real threat now to our national security. Meanwhile, the beneficiaries of President Trump's decision had not only been ISIS, but Russia and the Syrian government and Iran, which have now moved to occupy territory and even bases that were once ours. So that's one big challenge in Syria, the fight against ISIS. The other two are ones that have been going on since 2011 when the civil war broke out in Syria. And the question that we wrestled with repeatedly in the Obama administration, which I write about in the book, in addition to what I just described about ISIS, was to what extent should the United States get involved with the opposition in the fight to topple the dictator in Syria, Assad, who is killing hundreds of thousands of his own people? This was a really difficult challenge because the humanitarian consequences of the conflict were huge. It was spilling over and destabilizing neighboring states. And the refugee outflow was even affecting countries as far away as Europe. We wrestled with that decision. President Obama repeatedly 
revisited the question of to what extent, if any, we should get involved in that conflict. And while he decided to assist the opposition and provide humanitarian assistance and try to work to negotiate a political solution through diplomacy, he decided ultimately that we should not put U.S. ground forces into that war, which would have been an Iraq-style commitment to fight the Syrian regime. It was a wrenching and difficult decision, which none of us feel good about because the consequences of that conflict have been enormous. But I certainly personally think that was the right decision, although others might differ. Third thing was chemical weapons use. And this is the so-called red line when Assad used chemical weapons in 2013 in countervention of a red line that President Obama had drawn a year before. President Obama then tried to get Congress to authorize military strikes to punish the Assad regime for the use of chemical weapons. Congress did not provide that authorization or support. So President Obama turned to diplomacy and managed to negotiate the removal of what we thought at the time was the entirety or at least the bulk of Syria's chemical weapons stockpile. And so we got out and destroyed 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons, which turned out to be substantial but not necessarily the entirety. So those are the three separate but important challenges that we wrestled with during the Obama administration in Syria and that Trump has continued to wrestle with, although he never bothered to consider the question of whether to get involved in the Syrian civil conflict. It was arguably too late uh, by the time he took office, but he has had to deal with chemical weapons use and, of course, ISIS. Assad just did that interview where he said Trump is the best American president not because his policies are good, but because he's the most transparent president. And he seemed to be speaking about Trump just being really clear that they just want the oil. So while Trump announced that there's going to be a small amount of troops remaining, it's just to safeguard the province with oil in it. What do you make of that? Well, what I make of it is that the Syrian regime, which is backed by Iran and Russia, always wants to discredit the United States uh, and its presidents. And Trump played directly into their hands in doing so by saying publicly, frankly, he didn't care about the Kurds, he doesn't care that much about ISIS. He really only cares about the oil, which is exactly the extremist narrative against the United States, that we're in the Middle East to steal the Arabs' oil. And it's very unhelpful and very detrimental to American security and to our interests in the region. You know, there are a lot of people listening who are trying to make sense of what we do in 2020, Everybody wants to get Trump out of there that listens to this podcast. But there are a lot of people who don't know much about foreign policy. So what advice would you give for people as they try and wade through the foreign policy part of the 2020 race? Well, first of all, it's worth paying attention to and not, you know, deciding it's not your business. Because at the end of the day, it could affect young men and women in this country most directly. If President Trump stumbles into or starts a crazy war, for example, with Iran or with China. That's not the kind of thing that we're going to manage purely through an all-voluntary force. It's going to change a whole lot of people's lives. And what young people and what the American people want and need is thoughtful, responsible leadership that considers very carefully the risks and the benefits of our international action. And so what people ought to look for, in my judgment, is a president with wisdom, with judgment, with intelligence and integrity, 
who is willing to study and understand these complex issues and not just go on a whim or a gut or whatever he wakes up with after having slept on the wrong side of the bed, which is what you feel like Trump's doing. Or worse, what we sometimes see that Trump is doing is, frankly, using the power of his office and the role of the presidency and commander-in-chief not to serve our national interests, but to serve his personal interests, whether his personal political interests, as in the case of Ukraine, or his personal financial interests. And this is extremely dangerous. So we need leadership that recognizes that we are safer and we are likely to be more prosperous and we are likely to be more faithful to our values when we have a president of the United States that understands the purpose and the value of American leadership around the world, that we're stronger when we're working with allies and friends rather than alienating our allies and friends. We're stronger when we're clear about who our adversaries are and confront them with unity and resolve. We need a president who understands that not every problem is a nail and therefore not every tool that we use can be a hammer, that we have to not only have the strong military that we have, but we also need to invest in diplomacy and development and intelligence and be faithful to our values, all of which are important to leadership. So there's some candidates that are seemingly arguing that we should retreat from the world, that the problems of the world are not our own problems. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, whether we're talking about terrorism or climate change, or pandemic disease, or you know trade wars, we have to be engaged in the world to keep ourselves safe. We can't hide behind walls and barriers and expect that uh, we will be able to secure ourselves or be prosperous. Because the nature deray of the challenges we face in the 21st century are that they're transnational. They cross boundaries. We've just talked about terrorism which we've experienced on our own shores. These are the kinds of threats, not to mention climate change, which is one of the gravest national security threats we face, that require collective action by many countries working together. Not any one country, even ours is the strongest on the face of the earth, can resolve all these challenges by ourselves. And by the way, we can't bomb climate change into submission or a disease we have to use other tools that involve the cooperation of other countries. You know, I wanted to ask too, because there is a lot of conversation about Russia in the chapter called uh, The Fourth Quarter. You talk about Russia and getting the intelligence about Russia and the hard decision about when to go public, when not to go public. Can you help us understand how we make sense of the Russian involvement in the election? And is there anything like citizens can do to offset that as we go into 2020? Or is this just a government thing and we just have to wait and hope the government intervenes? Like, what's the what there? Absolutely, there's stuff that citizens can and must do, in my judgment. So in 2016, for the first time, we saw Russia engage in a multifaceted effort to corrupt our elections for the benefit, in this case, of one candidate, Donald Trump. Their goal was not just to elect Trump through stealing emails and publishing them, through trying to infiltrate our voting systems in various states, through putting out false information on the internet or sometimes not false information, but 
real information that was designed to pit Americans against each other on racial lines or on other hot-button issues like immigration or gun control or gay rights. Russia wants to undermine our democracy and our global leadership as a result, but it also wants to undermine the concept of democracy globally because it's antithetical to their authoritarian system. So basically, Russia wants to be the number one country in the world under Vladimir Putin. And to accomplish that, it needs to make America weak. And that's exactly what all of this is about. By the way, it was not just in one election in 2016. It's every day since then, up through now, and will undoubtedly continue and intensify through 2020. What the Russians are doing on a daily basis, DeRay, and Americans really need to understand this, is that they are pitting us against each other. We have our own domestic divisions, which are really problematic. And I talk about at length in the last chapter of the book, how our domestic political divisions are our greatest national security vulnerability, in my estimation. But the key reason why they're our greatest vulnerability is because our adversaries have figured out that if they just pour salt into our own domestic wounds and pit Americans against each other and have them doubt our information and our institutions and just hate each other so much that they try to foment, if not civil conflict, then as close to it as they can get, then they can defeat us, DeRay, without ever having fired a bullet by using ourselves against one another. So that's their whole scheme. And every day on the internet, on these hot button issues or in, every, in various political races, and by the way, not just in the United States, but in Europe and now in Africa and various other parts of the world, they're trying to corrupt the political systems of other countries. And that's what they're doing here in the United States. So what can we do about it? First of all, we have to recognize it and understand how dangerous it is and how urgent it is. Secondly, we've got to insist that the U.S. government, including Congress, put all of the effort and resources they possibly can behind protecting us against that interference. There are many things that can be done that aren't being done, like requiring that every state and local election have paper ballots so that we have a backup trail to validate the outcome of elections, that we put money into modernizing our election systems so that they can't easily be hacked. There's a whole range of things, and there are a whole bunch of proposals sitting in the Senate in Congress because Mitch McConnell refuses to move them. And you got to ask why. But we as citizens can put pressure on our senators, including the Republican leadership, to protect us by moving this legislation and putting real money behind it. And the other thing, DeRay, we can do is to be much more intelligent, thoughtful consumers of the information we receive. Just because something is in our Facebook feed doesn't make it true. Just because somebody we follow on Twitter says something doesn't make it true. And we're not being careful, wise, discerning consumers. And as a result, ads we see on Facebook, the political ads or the political posts, or that we see uh, on Twitter or whatever social media are actually being put there by foreigners designed to make us angry at each other. You know, they pitting Black Lives Matter against white supremacists and fueling that hatred. That's what they do every day. And we need to understand that and guard against it. 
Boom. There are two questions that we ask everybody in the pod to end. The first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? My father always taught me, and I write about this extensively in the book. He's always said, don't take crap off of anyone. That means believe in yourself, know your own worth. If anybody tries to diss you or dismiss you, push back. Don't take it. Don't let them put you down. Serve me well. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question is that there are a lot of people who have done everything they were told to do. They emailed, called, testified, voted, protested. They did all the things. And the world hasn't changed in the way that they thought it would. What do you say to those people who are challenged a little bit in the hope space? What I'd say to them, DeRay, is you have to keep at it. You know, we get the leaders we choose. And if we don't choose, then the people that other people choose have the opportunity to determine our destiny. That's what we're facing now. And look at the consequences. So for those who are frustrated that, you know, things aren't, you know, haven't been exactly as they hoped, I understand that. But they're a whole lot better when we have leaders who share our values and our interests and want to see the benefits of this country distributed to all Americans and... That's not what we have now. We have leadership that's trying to divide us, pit us against each other, demonize people of color, grab women in places they shouldn't be grabbed. It's disgusting, and we have a choice to make. And if people don't take this upcoming election deadly seriously, we're going to have more and worse of the same. And I truly believe that our democracy may not recover, and our global leadership will never be as it has been in the past, which is dangerous for us and will make us less safe and less prosperous. So this is, in my mind, without question, the most important election of our lifetimes. And we sit it out at our peril. There we go. Well, Ambassador Rice, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. We consider you a friend of the pod. You have been on most of the Crooked Pods, so I'm excited to have you here. You know, I will say I learned a lot in this interview, and I learned even more in the book. Thank you so much, DeRay. Great to be with you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.